So was it just a logical step to go all in into those different markets? Or was there like a bigger methodology behind it? If you're coming in with an ironclad plan that you have basically boxed yourself in and you can't change, it's going to be very hard to be successful. What would you say was maybe one of the greatest learning you had on this ongoing expansion adventure? I think the biggest challenge on international expansion is the opportunity cost. Ruling things out sometimes can be more helpful than spending time on analyzing where you do want to go. Getting somebody in as a partner early who can help that focus and put in that infrastructure is really, really important. We also took a very different approach than a lot of sort of rideshare companies where... Today, we are bringing to you Dylan Twombly, Chief Revenue Officer at VIA. VIA is a pioneer in transit tech, and with its software, they're enabling organizations to digitize their existing transportation networks and launch new and innovative services. And because their solution is made for transportation network, their, typ their typical clients are cities and transit agencies. And so due to the nature of their business, scaling for VIA goes hand in hand with internationalization. So the more cities they have using their technology, the more geographically expanded they become. Therefore, internationalization and expanding into new markets has become second nature to VIA. By now, they have already launched in more than 700 cities from 40 different countries and have people on the ground in 16 different markets. So I'll let you guess what we talked about. The expansion playbook. That's right. <laughs> so in this episode, we are talking about their step-by-step -step process to open new markets, how they evaluate partners in the local markets, and how VIA is being very careful in preserving their global company culture. With that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dylan. You told us that VIA was able to efficiently expand into 700 cities in 40 countries. You also have like about 1,100 people, if I'm not mistaken, in 16 different countries. Uh, and if that is not wowing enough, I know that your compound annual growth rate over the last five years is above 200%. And so for the listeners not familiar with this KPI, it essentially means that year after year for five years in a row, the company revenue grew by 200%. So I think this says enough about the credibility of you, Dylan, to talk about this. Yeah. So please go ahead. Maybe we should start with the beginning um, because five years ago, you, you joined FIA. I know that the company already existed for five years. But so take us, uh, take us in your journey. You started at VIA. I don't know how was the situation back then, and also what was the mission you were hired for. Yeah, so I came on to to help um, sort of expand what we would call the partnership side of our business. So working with cities and agencies directly. We started as a consumer rideshare. The big difference with us was that our default was a shared ride. So we were always taking multiple passengers traveling in the same direction. In a, in a vehicle. So it was more environmentally friendly. It was more affordable for the consumer um, and sort of better all around. We When the co-founders started VIA, they really wanted to work with cities, but I think cities weren't quite ready yet. Um, and so starting in about 2015, we started having conversations with some cities, um, Cap Metro uh, Transit Agency in Austin, Texas, and Orange County as well were two of the first cities that VIA deployed with. And those were the first instances of taking that technology that we use to power consumer rideshare and powering microtransit services with the city. Um, and these were some of the first deployments anywhere. In 2017, there were about three microtransit RFPs in the United States. Now we see more than three in some days. Um, so 
the market has grown considerably and cities and agencies are really using a lot more technology. So um, I came on to help sort of with that transition. The company was already well underway, had a number of deployments, but uh, this was really to build sort of a, a more traditional B2B sales and customer success team to help propel that growth. Interesting. So when does the uh, internationalization aspect get into picture? So we we had we were running consumer services both in London and in Amsterdam at the time, and had a very large cooperation um, with BVG, which is the transit agency in Berlin, um, running a couple hundred vehicles there in partnership with them. At the time, it was one of the largest microtransit services in the world, and still would be a, is a very large service today. Um, and we really started on top of those services. So we started looking at Germany and the UK primarily to see how we could take that technology and partner with cities or local um, private operators uh, who work with cities or transit agencies. Um, and so we had some footprint there and some team. So they knew the language, they knew the regulations, they had some relationships with local regulators. We also took a very different approach than a lot of sort of rideshare companies where we really wanted to partner with the city. Our goal was always to make transportation more affordable, more equitable, and better across the transit networks. You know, we started this to try to partner with cities, but they sort of just weren't ready yet. And so when we shifted to this side of the business, it was not a significantly different approach. You know, these are our customers now, so you sort of can't go in and launch and break regulations and do things that, that some companies have done. If you want these people then to be your customer later on, you really have to take a very different approach. Wow. Yeah, that would make sense. So there was actually already some footprint in um, yeah, other markets, uh, primarily Europe, I would say. Um, so how did that all help in the further internationalization of VIA? I can imagine you have like already a footprint there. So was it just a logical step to go all in into those different markets? Or was there like a bigger methodology behind it? Yeah, we, we ended up looking at to see, because we had people there, those were sort of easy markets to start with. And if you look at sort of how transportation is run and what the spend on transportation is there, um, UK, Germany, and then France are, are definitely the largest markets in Europe. Uh, and so that's where we started. I think for all of our international um, expansions, we've looked at what the overall spend on transportation is, how that transportation network is run. So if you look at sort of the United States as a whole versus the UK, UK is mostly privatized. It's very different. In the United States, you have a lot, um, you know, many, many systems are operated by city or agency employees with some private help in some cases. Um, whereas in, in the UK, for instance, it's totally privatized and supposed to be uh, operated on a, a no subsidy break even um, basis, though there are subsidies in other forms for those operators. Um, so we, um, we looked at other countries, both across Europe and globally, to see where um, spend on transportation is relatively high and where they have relatively robust transportation networks that are somewhat capacity constrained, right? We want to come in and drive additional efficiency um, as well as accessibility and equity across, uh, across the transit network. So those were sort of our, our key starting points. Mm, those are good ones. And I guess those kind of help in uh, making an educated guess about the TAM in those different markets. Yeah, so like the just, other also, parameters that oh. sort of some of the local regulations too were really important in some places. Mm, yeah, depending on how they run the cloud and where data has to be stored, some of those could be potential blockers as well. Hi guys, I quickly want to let you know that we are doubling down on this podcast, and by so doing, we are looking for the better revenue stories out there. 
So if you like what you hear, please give it a like or a follow. It is a simple click on a button, but that click would mean the world to us. All right, let's go back. As I remember in the in the preparation, you also mentioned something about the employment market, and I was kind of wondering, like, in how much did that impact the decisions of entering into certain markets? I think it, it impacted the need for cities and transit agencies, particularly if you look at post-COVID, almost all transit agencies and globally are hurting for drivers. The driver market is very, very tough. And so a lot of transportation networks, yes, demand has fallen off a little bit post-COVID and some of that demand has not yet come back. But even with the demand they have, a lot of agencies are struggling to get enough buses to be able to run the service that they'd like to because of driver shortages. Uh, and that's something that's persisted school buses, um, transit buses, really across the the driver industry in general. So this is a way of okay. being able to provide them with additional capacity and efficiency too. Mm -hmm. All right. What about the um, the local culture? So on the culture front, we have um, regional leads in different regions that run both sales and customer success. Um, all of them are local nationals. So we're hiring from the local market, people who, understand, who, have, who have the local language, which is key. Um, and know the local regulations and can have local relationships. They're obviously supported by a global team in terms of enablement um, and central operations as well as our technology team. But most of those sales and customer success folks are local. Even in the United States, we have teams that are regional. Um, transportation is very, very local. So understanding the local needs um, and sort of the local customs and the local challenges is really, really important. Um, particularly in Europe, you, you cannot you cannot sell into most markets with just an English speaker. Mm -hmm. I think that would make sense. And you also, but an interesting remark about this in the preparation is that um, having someone local is important, uh, but I think the element of trust with that local partner is the most important aspect of working with someone local. So I don't know, can you maybe share your experience when it comes to partnering up with someone local? Yeah, I, I think... It for us at VIA, we spend a lot of time working with partners, and there are, in most markets, tons and tons of different partners that transportation or technology companies can work with. And having a fit both on value and sort of company culture, I think, is really important. And so we've really strove, we really strove to have um, partners who are aligned with us and that we get along with and that sort of have the same goals. Um, and I think that's really helped us. I think that local trust, both from, you know, obviously the, our team, but having um, local partners, whether it's in Japan or in the Emirates um, or in Australia, who we can work with, it ha has been key for our growth. I think they've also helped to, when you have challenges, as you do in any partnership, whether it's you know on the relationship or things that happen in the local market, it just helps you get through them much much better. And I think um, you know if you think about negotiating a partnership agreement, if you're going back up and forth on things and it's getting acrimonious, even during the negotiation, it's probably not going to work out after because no matter what's on that paper, you have to trust each other um, and sort of assume that you have best intent on both sides and that will help get through some of these challenges. So we've tended to spend a lot of time selecting local partners and making sure that you know they uphold our values and have the same goals that we do. Yeah, I, I think that would make sense. And especially the, I mean, trusting each other uh, when you enter a country or want to establish like a big part, portion of your business in a country where you haven't been before, I think that totally makes sense. But the, how did you guys then went on and evaluate the trust? How do you, I mean, is it just about having multiple touch points until there is a certain moment that where you say, all right, we trust each other or were there like other specificities that, yeah, you put into place? Yeah, I think there are a few things. I think having alignment on goals and that becomes pretty clear upfront. Um, 
And, you know, that manifests itself in the agreement that you sign and sort of how you're going to work with each other. And so, you know, finding someone whose style uh, or how they're going to help you locally is aligned with yours. Yes, you want to have, you know, very strong partnership documentation. You want to make sure you have, you know, anti-bribery and and all of the the ethics compliance that, that you need. But at the end of the day, you know, as you said, you've got to be able to have sort of this, I don't want to say gut feeling, but have had enough discussions and understand based on other people they've worked with um, and what they're trying to do. And that comes across pretty clearly, if not during the early conversations, definitely through the negotiation for the, the agreement. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's 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 actually good advice. Um, if you enter a new market, I can also imagine that there are, there is like a certain potential, right? The TAM, a uh, certain potential opportunity. Yeah. But at the same time, when you enter a new market, there is also a risk and I think the bigger the markets the bigger the potential but also the bigger the risk because if it fails you feel big um, and also if for example there is competition again it shows that you have potential because there is already an existing market but again it's a risk because you yeah you it makes it makes it harder to penetrate that market so how did you guys or are still actually balancing those two potential versus the risk I, I don't think you ever have it figured out um I don't think I ever wake up in the morning and feel like I know everything and don't need to learn anything. So I think part of this is just keeping attuned to how the situation on the ground has changed, how your goals have changed, um, and what you're trying to do. I think the biggest challenge on international expansion is the opportunity cost. There are lots of places you can go that could have TAM, whether it's a small TAM and you're going to take most of it, or it's a big TAM and you're going to take a small piece. Um, I think having an understanding of how you're going to do business there and how your business works is key. Um, there are definitely markets that we have avoided because of what, um, whether it's intellectual property risk or just the cost of doing business locally or bureaucracy. Um, I think we've tried to be very careful and I think it's hard if you get somebody on the ground or you go take a trip there and you, you think there is a, a kernel of a deal that you want to continue to try to nurse through and, and make something come out of it. It's hard to walk away from that. And so I think always having clear goals and a timeline um, because it's never too late to sort of, you know, you've come in, you've learned a lot. And I think we've definitely looked at markets that we haven't entered where we've learned a ton and it's been super educational, but we haven't ended up going forward. Um, which I think is not a, it's not a waste of time. Um, in many cases, you've saved yourself a lot of time later on. I think also for us, we have not had a presence on the ground before we have done a, had a deal, a live deal in that country. And so a lot of our, um, deployments have, uh, have come from references or visits um, that other cities or transit agencies have done, whether it's in their country or a neighboring country. And so that's been a great way for us to start and sort of work on that market remotely, make sure it works, make sure there are no regulatory issues that we're not aware of, make sure the financial model works on the ground, both for the partner and for us, um, and that it's a, it's a good complement to their local network. And then once that's clear, you know, once you have a deployment, then it's clear, and we get this reference on the ground too. And so it's much, much easier we're not sort of pointing to another example in a different country that may or may not resonate as much. Um, and so that's been a sort of a, the tech we've taken. Mm-hmm. What can you, how can you describe like the plan, the yeah execution plan that you want to make happen in those different uh, yeah deployments? Uh, because I can imagine you have also a certain, I mean, certain KPI, certain you know goals that you want to attain, but you have never done it before. So how, you know, Easy is it to make like a very educated guess on the KPI that you want to realize? I, I don't know. You probably have done it multiple times. So I'm kind of curious, like, how does the, the expansion plan actually look like? 
I would say two things. One, it's important to have a plan. And two, it's important to be flexible because your plan will never be, the plan you make is not the plan you will, you will carry out. And so being willing to make changes, but also have some, some clear guidelines that you want to stay in, um, both in terms of time and financial commitment is really important. So you don't find yourself sort of in a, in a deep hole. I think in all these, much like with partners or partner selection, we've come in and done a deal or two before we've made a big commitment. And I would say that that's probably the one thing I left out on, on partners. We're not usually looking for a partner or signing an agreement until we've worked together. And so we've gone through one or two deals where we've worked together and then seen that it's worked, our teams like each other, we're culturally aligned, and then we'll, we'll look to make a, a formal agreement. And that's tended to be true on international expansion too. You can always find maybe one sort of unicorn um, there, but the question is, can you replicate that? And are the conditions similar across the, the rest of the market? And so I think typically we'll go in, try to do a couple of deployments and then have enough pipeline that we can have some confidence that it's worth putting people on the ground. You know, we can see some long-term value there and some potential for expansion, which I think is also important, right? You may be going in with some relatively small deals to get a, a foothold in the market, which is great, as long as you have a clear path for how you're going to get growth later on. Okay, that's interesting because I, w I wanted to ask you that question because indeed you, um, I mean, Via is present, is active in 40 different countries, but you only have people on the ground in 16 different countries. So yeah. when is it then time to make that transition? You kind of mentioned it, but can we go a little bit deeper on it? When when is it time? Because you have done it already 16 different times. So Yeah, and I, I think it depends on the market that you're into. Um, so we have um, a team in Australia, for instance, that ends up supporting New Zealand. Um, there could definitely be a time where we put people on the ground in New Zealand too, but right now that's worked um, sort of culturally and from a regulatory standpoint. And they're close enough together, even though it is, is not very close when you look at a map. Um, it's close relative to the United States, um, but um, that's worked pretty well. And I think also in Europe, you know, there are a lot of um, some markets that we can support from other markets. We tend to support our customers in Austria and Switzerland from Germany. That's worked very well from both a language and cultural and travel perspective. And so having folks on the ground to support all of those doesn't actually scale. And this way we can make sure that these teams have the resources they need. We can have the technology, the engineering, the product, um, and the operations resources local for these teams to make sure they can support these partners efficiently. Hi guys, just wanted to invite you to block May 16, 2024 in your agenda for the We Are Sales Conference. The number one reason why people didn't join last year is simply because they hadn't blocked the date. So I hope that by so doing, you can block it. Hope to see you there on May 16, 2024. All right, let's go back. So let me summarize a little bit. So let's say the expansion playbook at FIA uh, looks like the following. You first have like one or two, uh, let's say pilot projects that have worked in a certain country. Then you say, all right, maybe we can look up um, for partners, for more long-term uh, relationships. If that also works well, then maybe, um, and if, we cannot actually um, operate that specific market from a close-by market where it also makes sense, then it makes sense to actually go and uh, have people on the ground there. I think that's right. I think even though, bef even I would start, even before we look at or consider a deployment or working with a city in, in, a, in a new country, we'd look at the overall economics, we'd look at the regulatory environment and the TAM, um, we, we definitely get inbound from cities where we definitely want to help and see if we can support them efficiently remotely. In some cases, that's not the, that's not the case, or it's not worth it from a regulatory and sort of like corporate governance standpoint to have to enter a new market. We may have to operate a new entity. 
Um, you know, the opportunity cost of doing that versus focusing on a larger market like France or the United States or Germany, um, the opportunity cost there is pretty high unless we can see, you know, again, opportunity for longer term growth. So we'll do a fair amount of analysis first, but then once we're interested, we wouldn't make a huge commitment without having um, a deployment or two first on the ground. And then, yeah, then the playbook, we'd sort of work through the playbook as you described. So yeah, are, are there actually um, some specific KPIs or metrics that you really take into account when entering a new market that you want to see evolve like, you know, after the first three months, after the six first months, after the first year uh, that are very, very crucial and important when entering a new market? Yeah, I think there are three things. One is, you know, what is the TAM? So what are the number of cities or transit agencies there that we can work with? And then the second is, what is the local sales cycle look like? So in some places, and I, I, won't, I won't pick on any of our, our partner countries, but some places the sales cycle is a lot longer. Um, they'll have to procure the year before, go through a budgeting cycle, and then we'd sign the following year. Other cases, we can move a lot quicker. And so based on what that cycle looks like, um, we can then get a sense for what kind of revenue goals are, and um, including what kind of margins are reasonable over the, the preceding months. And that's sort of how we would do targets. And then we would grow the team accordingly. So if we feel like we can make a lot of progress and there's a relatively large TAM, we might hire more people on the sales side um, if we think there's a lot of opportunity for growth. So if we're starting with a smaller pilot with a large city, um, we would then you know be able to um, maybe leverage the, the customer success team more. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Would you say that, the, that this is like the same for every new market expansion that you do? Or would you say that depending on the market, depending on the country, um, I'm also thinking in terms of go-to-market motion, right? You you hire a team. Yeah. The way that the sales process is might also be different from market to market. Or would you say that it is fairly, I mean, it is fair to say that for every market, there is like a very similar playbook that we can, that we can, uh, give to the markets? Yeah, we are definitely very flexible. And I think if we had a cookie cutter approach to every market, it really wouldn't work. Um, you know, these are sort of the, the broader tenants that we look at as we're, as we're entering the market, but we're very attuned to kind of what do we need locally. Some markets, we need a local partner who's either operating and we're working very closely with them and providing technology and sort of expertise. Other cases, we're going in by ourselves and able to sell directly. So it really depends on sort of what the, the construct and sort of some of the barriers in the local market are. Good to know. I you, you also mentioned it earlier that it is an opportunity cost to, I mean, there are a lot of opportunity costs related to entering a new market. Um, and I know that sequencing in that is also very important. So I can imagine that may, what's even more important is not to say what market are we going to enter, but either what market are we not going to enter maybe ever, but maybe just yet. And so how do you... How do you look at sequencing? Yeah, I, I, I do. I agree with I agree with the, the latter part of what you said, and that I think ruling out some markets for now, whether they're too big or the investment is too large, and you're just not ready. I think that's a great way of looking at it, and that way, um, you sort of you know what the the sort of TAM of new markets is, so to speak, um, and can focus on that. I think ruling things out sometimes can be more helpful than spending time on analyzing where you do want to go. I think sequencing is hard. I think you can look at the biggest, most most um, sort of attractive markets for you and rank order those. And if you're trying to pursue a couple at once, 
once you get in, you're going to have an understanding of how fast can you actually move. And a lot of this is going to be opportunistic too. You know, I think, um, at least I have found in sales, the people who are not at their desk, the people who are out having lunch and working with partners and understanding what their challenges are, they tend to sort of get lucky the, the most. And so um, it's hard to sequence these when a city could have a dire need that you can come in and fill. And so it's both about sort of being very structured and organized, but also keeping your sort of ear to the ground for other opportunities that might mean you shift the order because you feel like you can get in with a capital city in a country very quickly um, because of something that's going on there on the ground. And that changes. And so you don't want to reprioritize these all the time. But I think if you are very rigid about where you're going, um, you can you can end up sort of costing yourself a lot of time, um, which, I, again, I think is really the biggest calculation as you're doing these. It means you have to travel, you have to be on the ground, you have to spend a lot of time having conversations that are not going to go anywhere so you can learn how the local market works. Um, and, and doing that, it just, it comes at a, it always comes at a cost. And so you want to make sure that you're, you're um, sort of taking advantage of any um, events in the market that can give you a little bit of an edge and help you move faster. Yeah, that's, that's actually a great point. Uh, because how far can you go in the preliminary research that you make before actually knowing, yes, this is a great opportunity because I feel like you can always do like extra meetings, always find, you know, extra statistics, uh, extra information, extra data. So you can always improve on your research, but eventually you have to make a decision whether you enter or not. So when, I mean, is there like a particular time in, in I mean, in, in the process for you guys where you say, all right, now we know enough and it's time that we move on? Or is it yeah, something difficult? I, I, I don't think there's a... Um... I wouldn't say there's a formula, but we tend to, you know, with most decisions, get as much information that we reasonably can. And I think for for us, it's about making the decision that you know probably isn't 100% right in every way. And so building in some flexibility up front so that you can modify your plan as you go. I think that adaptability is the other thing that I would sort of, um, the other advice I might give is if you're coming in with an ironclad plan that you have basically boxed yourself in and you can't change, you're, it's going to be very hard to be successful. There are almost certainly going to be things that you have not learned. And whether you're hiring a local consultant and spending years doing studies, it's always different when you get on the ground. Um, and so we tend to try to move fast to get that initial exposure. You're not making a huge commitment, but you want to understand how it works. And, and the only way to, or the best way to do that, I guess, is firsthand. And so when we're making these decisions, we're building ourselves in assuming we, no matter how much research we've done, we know 70 or 80% or 60%, and then we're building that flexibility to adapt as we learn more. Mm -hmm. That would make sense. Um, so when you enter a new market, really a deployment of people on the ground, um, I can imagine that finding the right people, the right talents is super complicated because you are not in that market yet. So how do yeah. you guys approach that? How do you make sure that you find the best talents? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up. I think hiring in general and, and whether it's new markets or just for VIA more broadly is really important. It's something that we spend a lot of time on and we are not hiring 30 people for roles thinking five or six will make it. Um, we're really investing in understanding both their sort of potential, um, their cultural fit, their goals, and sort of their longer term growth opportunity with us. Um, and so we, we tend to have a lot of interviews with people, both and everyone we meet in person before um, bringing them on board. And so 
we take that that path um, as well internationally, and we have we have enough um, sort of contacts we can leverage or people on the ground that we tend to get really strong candidates coming from other companies. It definitely is harder in new markets where you may not be known, right? If we go in the United sure. States or in Germany, particularly um, you know those markets and others, we'd be very we'd be relatively well known. Um, other where we're not we don't have any business, it's a little different. And so providing sort of international references um, in terms of customers or work that we've done um, can be a little harder. So we'll tend to use a network to find a few people. Um, you know, in some cases we'll use um, recruiters, but making sure that these people are sort of culturally aligned with us and that we meet them in person, I think has been very, very important. And one of the reasons I think we've been able to successfully scale is we've kept that culture very strong as we've grown. We have not sort of succumbed to the temptation to no matter how dire the need, hire a whole bunch of people and sort of figure it out later. We want to make sure we're maintaining that culture, particularly because the team is so dispersed, both um, domestically but also globally. We really want to make sure um, that we're building a culture that can work well together. And I think one of the things we've done a pretty good job at, we can always do better, is keeping a, a commercial team that really has a team mindset. And so everyone has clear goals and clear accountability. But because of those that clear sort of accountability and um, and goals, it means that you're not going to accidentally sell a deal in someone else's territory. You know, like, here is where what your goals are, here is where you're going to go after them. And so if there's a way for you to help a colleague, you're going to do it and be happy about it. And you're doing what's best for the company. Obviously, everyone's invested in the, the long-term success of VIA. And I think maintaining that culture so we don't have sort of a, a doggy dog culture on the commercial team has been really helpful. And so someone in Australia can call somebody in Canada and you know somebody in Israel can call somebody in France if they're working on a, a, a similar type problem or have a challenge with a customer or an opportunity, and the the person on the other end will be very happy to help them. I am now happy that you mentioned culture because that's definitely something I wanted to talk about. Because I can also imagine that different markets also have different maturity when it comes of the via, I mean, deployment and you know um, yeah. entrance in the market. So. I can also imagine that that to a certain level also reflects another culture. I can imagine when you enter a new country, you need to be, yeah, you need to want to hunt, you know, you, you want to make it happen. Well, if you are more established, I can imagine that you are more looking for, all right, how can we make the 1% optimization day by day so that, you know, we are the, the, the leading uh, provider out there. So how do you try to still maintain the main culture with the, the core values, but still also allow a more local aspect of it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. I think there are two parts to that too. I think there is both the local culture and, and what's going to be successful in that market. I think the other piece you, know, you mentioned is the maturity. And so if you feel like the market is very mature and doesn't take some building, the profile of the person, maybe not sort of from a company culture standpoint, but their skills and strengths is going to be very different in a market that we think is ready now. You know, if we're going to go in and scale very quickly and we really want to push hard, we're going to hire somebody who has a different profile and sort of skill set than if it's a longer term build and we really have to do a lot of market education. Um, so I think, you know, I would start there. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, this is a two way street, right? It's not just that we're hiring somebody, somebody else is deciding to come and work here. And so I think. That's also what the longer interview process and sort of more touch points does. The person's going to get a sense of like, okay, you know, if you talk to two people and you like one of them, you don't really know what the company's like. If you talk to nine or 10 people, 
and you you really get a good feel for what the company's like. You're going to talk to people on different teams, different backgrounds, um, different approaches, and sort of different styles. And then you're going to get a much better sense for for um, company culture. And so a lot of this, I would say, is also self-selection. So we're looking for people who've been successfully local, successful locally, um, but who we think will also be successful with us based on the culture fit and what we're trying to do at the time. And what does that mean to be successful locally? Um, I think we're looking for people with strong, similar profiles. So have they, it's not necessarily have they done this before, but have they been successful in other roles? And can we see them applying that skill set or experience to what we're trying to do together? Um, I think looking for sort of rote linear experience, like if you want someone who's been at an American technology company and has come in and built the market before, um, yeah, th those profile that profile can be successful too. But I think we tend to take a little broader aperture and, you know, we'll definitely consider people who've done that exact job before. But we're also looking for people who we think can be successful based on their prior experience and um, and success. You know, and again, to your point, okay. success is a relative term, right? We're looking for people who have, um, you know, who have been successful in what they're doing, and we can we can see them adapting those skills to to work with us. Mm -hmm. No, gotcha. Um, a, a question also linked to that is: I think, all right, you have found your your great country manager that aligns with the values of Via Global. Um, but then eventually they actually might have to hire a team locally. I Obviously, I, I, I can imagine, I assume that there are still, I mean, or at least in the hiring process, I assume that there are still, you know, also talking maybe to you or to at least people from the global organization. But how does that balance happen? How much do you give flexibility to the country manager that you trust and you have hired for that reason? Um, can that person take full responsibility on hire the local team and we make, and we will I mean and we trust you and we know that it will work or do you s still try to make sure somehow that there is like a, a check by the global team if you understand what I mean yeah I, I do and I, I think I would frame it a little differently it's less of like a lack of trust or ability or that we would put a check on the team and it's more for anybody that we're hiring on any team anywhere they're going to talk with other cross-functional teams. And so if you're in a smaller, newer market um, and you have a, sm you know, a smaller team there, that's great. Like we're still super excited. We're bringing those people on because um, for a reason, right? They, they are as important as anybody else, but we'll make sure that they also talk to cross-functional teams elsewhere just because they don't have that, that capability locally. And that's a great way of keeping the culture strong globally too, so that you don't end up with sort of pockets of different culture. And it's not that, you know, if the country lead or the hiring manager does not like someone, and feels very strongly we should not hire them. Yes, we're, we're definitely not going to hire them. Um, but at the same time, you know, we want to help them sort of understand the culture and make sure this person is going to be able to work across a global organization, right? I think that that um, kind of global community and the focus on mission we have globally is really important. I think one of the things that's made us successful. So we want to put somebody in who's going to be able to be successful in that environment. You know, it's as much for them as it is for us. I think, you know, People talk about making the wrong decision. That makes hiring. Sense. That's also very painful for the employee too. They don't want to go someplace where they're not going to be successful or be a fit. No, right. That 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 definitely makes sense. Um, how does the team? I mean, how, can you explain how the team grows um, usually? Because I can imagine you have that first hire, um, but then, and especially maybe from a revenue perspective, right? So where 
what are the the, the the sequence the sequence in hiring that you put in place for the local team to to be set to success yeah and that's where i think we'll look at the tam a little more closely and see how many cities or transit agencies we think we can go after and what the pace is and then frankly you know um do some calculations on how much investment we want to make there um you know a lot of our markets have grown very very rapidly uh, and so there's a lot of opportunity to come in and sort of create a new larger market. Um, particularly on the sales side, I think making sure that we have what I would say are, are fertile territories for people to work um, and we're setting reasonable targets that people can hit, I think that's really important. Um, so we'll tend to map out sort of what the sales strategy looks like. Are we going direct? Do we have some channel partners? Um, and then on the customer success side, we're hiring a little bit in advance, but um, there's a lot of opportunity for growth with our existing customer set because of the breadth of products that we can, or sort of solutions we can deliver to our customers. Um, so there we'll hire a little bit ahead so that we make sure our customers have great support um, and good relationships on the ground, but we don't tend to hire too much ahead. Um, you don't need a huge team there if you don't have a lot of customers yet. Um, but that's that tends to be how we will um, sort of enter. And then we'll bring in other teams like a, 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 our, what we call our our uh, expansion team, which is our launch team or solutions engineering team into specific markets based on need. Um, and a lot of that is sort of language and culture and sort of the speed of the market. Okay. Um, I still have a couple of questions for you. So maybe the expansion Please. team, what are they responsible for? What do they do exactly? So that team works through launching new cities. So they'll launch, they'll launch new deployments. We'll work with the local operations team to understand sort of how their operations run, what the challenges are, what the solution that we're implementing is designed to do. And then they'll launch that. Sometimes we'll do that remotely. Sometimes we'll do it on the ground. It really depends on um, the nature of that deployment. But they'll work through the with the customer after the sales team and before sort of the customer or in concert with the customer success team. Um, but that's kind of our implementation team. All right. Okay, okay. Gotcha. Um, and in the preparation, you also mentioned that if you would do it again, um, you will you would build stronger sales ops and customer success leadership earlier. Yeah, uh, I know you touched a little bit on it, but can you explain what was the experience uh, to that? I I think um, maybe I'm saying this to make my feel myself feel better, so I'm less unique. But I, I think a lot of sales leaders you are very focused on new deals at the beginning, right? Particularly when you're building a new market. If you're coming in and taking over an existing organization, that's very different. But if you're starting, and we weren't starting totally from scratch, but did not have a large team here. And definitely from a process perspective, it was pretty, the sales motion was very new. Um, and we had great people, existing people to help with that. But I think setting that infrastructure up, that's going to allow you to scale. Um, when we first implemented Salesforce, for example, I did it on a weekend with a consultant. I will tell you, I am not the Salesforce admin you want to hire. I am happy to admit that. So, you know, I think getting people in early um, who can help build a framework. Now, you don't want to come in too heavy. You can't come in and buy, you know, a million dollars worth of sales operations tools when you have three people on the team. But you can you can see a little bit in the future. Now, again, I think this is much like how we approach a lot of big decisions. If you come in and put everything uh, kind of in, in concrete and um, build a lot of heavy process without the deals to support it and without that knowledge, you know, that you're going to be in trouble. But I think coming in and building a robust enough infrastructure that is flexible so that as your deal cycle changes or you learn more about your customer, you can make those changes 
So, you know, for example, adding new, adding new products, um, how do you add new products? How do you think about that sales cycle? How do you want to, um, account for those and sort of, um, you know, from a financial standpoint, how are you looking at growth and how are you thinking about sort of P and L by product? Thinking all about all of that in advance and bringing on somebody very strong to help you do that very early um, is really helpful. And I think similarly on customer success. Again, this gets to what is your what is your growth motion and your sales motion and sort of what is the um, interaction like with your customer? Do they need lots of handholding? Are you working on adoption? Um, is there lots of opportunity for growth? That's really going to depend on the type of organization you build. But I think getting somebody in as a partner early who can help that focus um, and put in that infrastructure is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And I guess there is also some expectations maybe linked to the brand fire. I, I, maybe that also depends in terms of how much awareness there is about the brand. But I can imagine, you know, you know, you hear about fire, you know, it's entering the country. Um, the The customer experience needs to be top level no and yeah, i can imagine I think, you need someone from customer success or do you look at more in terms of business opportunities opportunities that you miss because you don't have someone from customer success no it's definitely both i mean we're providing a, a critical service to cities and transit agencies globally right this is how people get get around we have people who are dependent on mass transit it's very hard to say this rider on this service is more important than this rider on this service um, we really need to be providing a very high level of both, you know, sort of um, service and quality to our customers because of we're providing, you know, public infrastructure here. And so, mm -hmm. you know, not all of that is about just hiring tons and tons of people, right? If they're having a great experience um, and can interact with the tool, I think that's part of the thing that we have tried to do is build something that is self-service and very intuitive and very user-friendly. Um, but you're always going to have cases where, you know, partners need help or we're encountering challenges. And so making sure you've got a strong team that's there, um, particularly in a business like this where so much of our business is referential and what we're doing is very public. We're launching public services. We have mayors coming, we have senators and congressmen coming, city councils are talking about this. It's, there's always press around a new launch. This is a new public service that's helping the community. And so it's a great story for the city, right? We're not having to push them to do press and endorsements, the, the typically politicians and sort of local communities rally around being able to provide a great service for their community. So we want to make sure we're there to support and, um, and grow that. That makes sense. Um, I was also wondering about working in different time zones and how you guys kind of manage that, because I know it goes from all the way from New York to, I mean, to Japan, to, to yeah, West Europe. So yeah. Definitely different time zones there. So how do you guys manage that? Not sure you want my advice on this one, but um, I'll, I'll take a crack at it anyway. <laughs> I, I think part of this is... I don't is, know, is, is it a challenge? Maybe, maybe also just the question, is it a challenge in terms of managing revenue department? You know, maybe you say no and then... I mean, I think anytime good. you have a new international organization, um, it is a challenge in a good way. Um, and I think... I think I, I would, I look at this, I think we look at this like um, sales anywhere. The goal is to establish internal processes and foundation that people can leverage and be relatively autonomous. Now, when you're setting up a new market and sort of bringing them into the process, obviously that's going to take more time. Um, and so I, I think, you know, my, maybe my learnings and advice there is invest, invest heavily upfront 
so that you can get that team up and running and able to make their own decisions. And this is where trust and I think communication becomes very important. You don't want somebody not reaching out to you to ask an important question, whether they're you know sitting next to you or nine time zones away, you wanna make sure that they feel comfortable that they can raise their hand and ask a question when it really matters, but also have the confidence to be able to make their own decisions on the ground. Um, and right. so a lot of that is trust. You know, you're gonna trust them to make small mistakes. And if they have big questions, maybe you make that big mistake together, but you can talk through it. And I think this is where like, you know, getting back to the interview process, having lots of touch points within the organization so they can talk things through, they can understand how we think about these problems or opportunities and make a similar discussion. And then, you know, you're going to trust them to make the best decision they can and, and people are going to make mistakes. And then I think, you know, our focus on mistakes is how do we get through this? It's less about blame. People typically learn very quickly when they make mistakes. Um, some people don't, that's a, that's a different, it's more of a, a performance issue, but I think you know, we want to set people up to be able to make mistakes and, um, then be there to help work through them and sort of get on to the next opportunity. So, um, yeah, I guess my advice on managing time zones is, you know, invest up front and make sure you're accessible to your team, but you also have to balance your need for sleep and, you know, the huge opportunity cost that, that lots of travel takes on um, teams, whether it's junior people or senior people. Yeah, no, that's good advice. Um, so I'm also sure that, you know, along the way, um, while expanding to new countries, to new markets, and actually probably still today, I mean, I guess you guys are still expanding uh, very quickly. Um, you know, top of mind, what would you say was maybe one of the greatest learning you had on this ongoing expansion adventure, or maybe like the biggest mistake maybe you guys have made, or, you know, anything you take on with you forever, but that you might also want to share with the, with the audience? Yeah, I, I think... I think um, being clear-eyed about where you are at all times is really important. And sometimes that means hiring more people quickly uh, and really pouring on the gas in a market because you see opportunity. And in my view, if you see opportunity, other people are going to see opportunity too, right? And I think one of the things we as a company in general have done pretty well is not sort of over-hiring. We're not hiring 50 people on the sales team, laying people 50 people off, hiring 100 people, laying 50 people off. We don't tend to have these huge cycles, which I think... Um, leads to some stability and sort of healthier growth. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, I think um, just being able to take stock of where you are and, and keeping that opportunity cost in mind, it's very easy to put good money after bad in some of these markets where you think you've spent a year trying to open it. You've been there nine times. You're working through some regulatory processes. You can still walk away, right? You can still make the right decision, even if you're making it too, you know, not too late, but you're, you've taken more time than maybe you should have. Uh, it's still the right thing. So I think the sunk cost fallacy is, is a little tough to get over in some of these markets. So I think you just have to maintain a very high self, uh, high level of self-awareness. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing this because uh, this was a very interesting interview. No, thank you so much, Dylan. Um, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Is there maybe a way that you want to use this platform to shout out anything? I don't know if you are uh, recruiting, for example, people in the European continent uh, region, or do you want to send, you know, uh, interested stakeholders your way? So where do you want to send them? Anything you want to use this platform for? Yeah, no, th thanks, thanks, other Dylan. Um, we're, we're always hiring great people. We've we've got relatively large teams in the UK, France, and Germany, so we're always on the lookout for great talent, both um, on commercial and operational teams. Um, I would the only thing I would just maybe close with is I think. 
The other piece that I think has been important for us is doing it as a team. Um, you are uh, here at VIA never alone. And so I think um, being super collaborative and taking input from teams that maybe in other places you wouldn't um, when you think about growth and sort of some of the risks and opportunities has been important. So I would that would be my sort of takeaway message is you're stronger together than sort of trying to do this by yourself. Thanks for sharing this. Uh, thanks also for coming on the show, Dylan. And so if people want to find out more about those positions, do you want to send them a, a certain direction? Yes, come come to um, ridewithvia.com and um, check out our open positions. We'd, we'd love to have um, great talent on the team. All right, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. I wish you nothing but the best and see you next time. Thanks, Dylan. That's it. We've once again reached the end of an episode. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And until next week with a fresh new episode.